0: Drinking absinthe is so much more akin to drinking wine than it is to um, drinking a cocktail or a neat spirit. Um, and I, I always think it sort of has this, uh, it has the mouth feel and texture. Uh, it's not the same as wine, but it has as much um, nuance of mouthfeel and texture as wine does. And then it has all the herbaceous element, right? which is incredibly complex, almost like a really fine tea. So I I always like to kind of compare absinthe to to a made up combination of tea and wine. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for another episode of Decoding Cocktails, I am Chris LeBeau, and uh, I just got off the phone with your mother, and sh- she told me how proud she would be of you if you would subscribe to, share, and or rate and review this podcast. Um, everybody could use their a little extra love from their mom, and so uh, there you go. This is the ticket. So beyond that... Uh, my guest today is Will Elliott. He is the vice president of Premier Enterprises. And uh, Premier Enterprises is a uh, hospitality uh, holding company that has several ventures on the East Coast of the U.S. and in the United Kingdom. We came together today to talk about a book that is coming out here shortly on April 25th that Will helped co-author called uh, The Maison Premier Almanac. And this is a book that is a steep study of a bar that he has worked at and uh, helped helm largely since 2011. Uh, The concept was Baked when Will was brought on, and originally he was just a a fellow bartender behind the bar, but went on to become uh, director of that bar program. And so what do you need to know about this bar? Why, Why yet one more cocktail book in the world? So this is a little quote that I hope will help if you're not familiar with the place. Maison Premier should be a New Orleans-inspired place with French styling, American craftsmanship, and influences from history. The story held that Maison opened in the 1800s and stopped modernizing in the 1930s. I, I'd followed this bar for a while and had the chance to visit last fall, and I uh, did not disappoint. You'll unfortunately hear me fanboy out a little bit during this interview, but what is what makes this place magical, in my opinion, is that as you'll hear in this conversation, they really did choose to sweat the small stuff. Um, thinking about things like attire and the decor on the wall, uh, every little detail was sweated to a point where uh, Maison does kind of overall look and feel like a place that is in the 1930s. And so it is a very transportive environment. And so it was fun for me to kind of, I I kind of rushed at the end of a New York trip, to kind of step into this place, and it um, it was interesting at times where like the the photography that comes out of this place is very very magical, and it was interesting to see the vibe captured so well. Um, I've written a little blog article on this piece on the place that I visited, uh, and so uh, if you would care to uh, take a look at that, it, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Um, Things that we're going to get into in this interview. We're going to talk a little bit about why technique is so important to Will. He is going to break down absinthe for you. Oh, you got to hear a, a bit from him about it at the very beginning right here. But, you know, absinthe for many people is still a relatively unknown spirit. And so Maison has a massive uh, absinthe selection. They also have a huge oyster selection. And so they have really chosen to lean into these items uh, in a very, very deep way. Um, it, Maison is the kind of place that sweats the small stuff, but as we will also talk about in it, despite the uh, well-clad nature of the place, it is decidedly a place that you go to have fun and escape as opposed to formal on formal, I believe, as I say, during the conversation. it um, It's uh, a, a really cool book in terms of you buy this is in a way it's a great study in building a brand and a place but it's also a fun divergence so you're probably buying this book admittedly shout out to Will for all of his beautiful creations you're buying this book less for the drinks because you're probably not going to make a ton of them because as Will said he is very quick with the drinks at Maison to grab another quarter ounce of this or that so some very complicated builds but uh, it's fun to Watch them break down the style that has ultimately become this place that opened in 2011. Still going very strong. It's only 700 square feet inside, and, um, and they have this wonderful little garden patio on the back. So uh, it's, uh, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Will. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Everybody should have the chance to visit. Uh, you can follow uh, Maison Premier online at Maison, M-A-I-S-O-N, Premier, uh, so feel free to go ahead and uh, check that out you can also follow will i'll have a link to his handle i believe it's young william Elliot. i believe is his instagram handle so with that i'm out of here enjoy this conversation with will so well a place i was curious to start as i saw i think it was in the book uh that uh before you know, in the process of when you were recruited to Maison, you were <clears> it, you were in Tucson and bartending and playing and uh, play play music, but it mentioned you collecting a lot of esoteric liqueurs. Yeah, and, and I was curious what led you to start that, or do you remember like a first bottle or taste you had that made you want to pick up uh, such a hobby?
0: Yeah. My parents were not drinkers, um, so I did not grow up with alcohol, particularly in the house. And the only exception being that my father in the 80s, you know, sort of fancied himself a little bit of a gourmand, at least to the extent that, you know, they w- he would attempt making like bouillabaisse or, you know, some classic like, um, you know, festive dish like that. And so the one exception was that there was Pernod in deep, hidden, deep within the cupboard uh, or our kitchen. So um, I had that flavor lodged in my mind. And I think I was always a flavor. I was always like affected by flavor. My, my father was also like into spices and herbs and seasonings at a time when, you know, again, the 80s, it wasn't really the heyday of good American eating. Um, So yeah, so I was really, you know, I was, I remember even just like chewing like caraway seeds as a kid or like, you know, so I've always kind of had that little quirk uh, for whatever that's worth. And I think that once I grew up, you know, I wasn't a casual drinker for for like high school and, and college. I, I didn't hardly drink at all. So when it, I did finally drink, it really affected me. Um and I I didn't want to think about drinking like, you know, um flavored vodka and things like that. So um you know I think I had a, a morrow um pretty early on in my drinking days, which is probably I'm dating myself now, but probably um 2004, or something, you know, around there. And that was my first experience with like an herbal liqueur. I you know, I still had yet to experience chartreuse, or Genefee, or absinthe, or anything, but um, so, you know, I had some, I, it was probably just Fernet, it could have been a Verna, um, and those things were very limited in the early aughts, you know, there was not a lot of it in retail outlets, especially not in Arizona. So, um, you know, wherever I could get my hands on a bottle of, you know, the more obscure, the better herbal liqueur. Um, that's, that's kind of where that started. I wasn't, I wasn't fascinated by like whiskey, like some people are, I wasn't fascinated by, you know, um, dirty martinis. Um, I'm not dissing either of those things. It's just my own personal angle. Um, really came from this sort of herbal spectrum
1: yeah i mean i i've certainly had many moments with spirits but uh to things talked about in the book i've talked about it before uh, on this uh but yeah like i mean for me i absolutely remember where i was when i first had my first taste of amaro i was in my friend josh's backyard and it was just like what is this right or i remember tasting rum agricole for the first time and yes. being like holy cow what in the heck sure. is this and so while I, you know, had my dalliances with, uh, excessive drinking, I suppose in college, I, I agree that, uh, there's certain things that make you, that make your, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stand up to be like, what is, what's going on here flavor wise right now?
0: Exactly. Yes. And that's, that's exactly how it happened to me. I was just, once I was bit by the bug, I was bit by the bug, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously, with Maison having been around for a while, a number of people have experienced it. But I, but first, where to jump in? I remember you saying along the lines in the book that uh, no place has ever made you feel like a bartender quite like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people, you know, so tell us a little bit about why that's the case. Tell tell us what makes this place special.
0: I think so much of it actually is intrinsic to the space, um, and not just what you'd think, like the surface finishing textures and colors and artwork and plants not not just that, but I'm more saying the physical design of the bar, you know, the idea of it being a horseshoe bar. Um, you are depending on how you looked at look at it, you're either trapped back there or you're on stage. You know, both are, I think are can be equally valid and it is such a it's such a prominent um visual uh, achievement like when when you walk into Maison Premiere you're just instantly confronted with a dapper bartender you know behind this memorably circular bar um and you know there was something about Maison at the time especially uh when we were brand new to the world of, you know, to the cocktail environment, cocktail community, um, we, we really experienced like a lot of um, people coming out, a lot of celebrities, a lot of industry um, titans, you know. And so it, it was just a really um, crazy place to be in 2011, 2012, 2013.
1: I, um, you know, I'd followed you guys for a while, like probably a number of people, but when I, I walk in, yeah, it was just, the place is, it is just so distinctly itself. I, I liked this line in terms of, um, it says the painting inside was done by an expert in historical recreation who distressed the walls up to 20 layers of various waxes to accrete a century of imagined history. You know, he patiently watched the path of the sunlight across the interior, and bleach the walls accordingly. And I think it's a a lovely sentiment for the fact that I remember sitting there and knowing that I was in the year 2022, and yet there really are these aspects. The music, everything, has obviously been fussed over. Uh, a beautiful point of the almanac. I love the fact that you actually have a chapter on dress. You know, it's like, sure. these these are the things that make a place so distinctly itself. And I know that was also part of what you guys hit upon is that when you opened, there were great cocktails in New York city, yep. but, but the cocktails in a way were more front and center as opposed to the space being just so transporting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, and you're totally right. We were, I think we kind of self identify as being the latter half of the cocktail Renaissance, if you will. So we were, you know, we have to acknowledge our sort of forerunners in that case, Um, and we, to this day, you know, I have a lot of respect for all those bars, but um, I think there was a really conscious effort on Josh and Christoph's part, and Josh and Christoph, of course, are co-founders, I was like a, you know, essentially a first hire, but they had the vision fully intact when I walked into the space, you know, and the space wasn't even open yet for another two or three months. So I was here. Uh, I had moved to the city, I guess it was about six weeks, six to, six weeks to eight weeks before opening. And so I was in the space, you know, seeing the build out and trying to wrap my head around the proportions of the place, the size, the size of the bar seemed really small to me. Um, and to their credit, you know, what I, if you had asked me pre-opening what um, the functionality of it would be, I, I was a little worried, and uh, you know, just from a purely operation standpoint, how we were going to pull off, you know, top tier craft cocktails at a reasonable speed behind that bar. And I was so wrong. It was, uh, it's absolutely... Um, a design that even in our other projects, we keep revisiting as being just almost a superior design, I think, for a bar. And it makes sense spatially, you know, if you just think about a circle, you have so much stuff at your reach because of the curvature, rather than needing to walk five to 10 to 20 feet down a straight shot bar. You know, I loved Sauvage. I thought Sauvage was a beautiful space. Um, Again, you know, another Josh um, designed project and yet you know I'll, nothing replaces maison's bar for me for functionality speed aesthetic that kind of stuff
1: yeah so to that point uh to a term that uh you know people who are in the industry and listen you know you know are are, are all familiar with the term mise en place and yet yeah. i like that at uh maison we have this whole other term and approach of uh, do easy so tell t- tell the <laughs> tell the folks at home uh, what in the hell uh do easy is and uh not too long of a drive for me is uh William S. Burroughs's uh grave. So uh yeah. Oh amazing.
0: Yeah. So it was a video that I stumbled upon uh years ago. And to me it just it, it's a Gus Van Zant short. And um it's rather obscure in its um style of teaching or, or whatever you want to call it but it's essentially an instructional video about just how to do everyday motions the things that you do most in your life um, sometimes plague us as, or haunt us as being the hardest and the idea of do easy is that you know you're since it's something you're doing every day <laughs> you should really put thought and effort even into the mundane things that you do every day Probably, arguably, even more effort and thought than, you know, the things you do once a year. So it's all these little motions that you do every day, um, sort of explained and analyzed in a video. Uh, You know, things like picking up a piece of paper off the ground and throwing it into the garbage or lifting up, I think he lifts up like an amplifier or a speaker unit or something. So applied to bartending, I just... I'm a technique driven person by nature. I grew up playing baseball, I grew up skiing and I obsessed about form in those things. Um, And so I just always think there's like a, there is a perfect way to bartend at least for Mason Premier. And, um, And I wanted to define that, you know? And so rather than getting bound up in various um notable bartenders opinions and styles and sort of emulating and picking from them I actually really wanted to try to create our own style now granted of course shaking a drink is shaking a drink and people have done it before but um how does Maison shake a drink you know I could have very easily just um plugged in um you know I was obsessed with uh, the Japanese hard shake as I think a lot of people were From those early youtube videos when there was only a couple of youtube videos on what that is and what it looks like i could have easily just plugged that in and insisted that our staff or we all learn the japanese heart shake instead i wanted to make a uniquely maison thing so we we developed something called the sort of american heart shake as i call it um which isn't rhythmic uh for a number of reasons it was just too it was almost too performative i didn't necessarily think that it um, always was the right way to shake every single drink. So, um, we sort of adapted with the form and played with the form and um, landed on a very different style shake that I think is notable. Like when you walk into Maison, it has a very like iconic sound. Um, mm-hmm. and we can get into that if you if you'd like, but it's because of the style of shaker combined with the method of shaking, um, and the way we pack it with ice and
1: such. Yeah, I, uh, I do in a minute want to get into that, but I, uh, another thing that I remember reading, cause you talk about, Hey, that efficiency is clearly important. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, with you guys, as you said, uh, a patio is apparently going in right now, you know, more seats, uh, to have to f- fulfill, but so is this idea of fluidity and grace. And I feel like one of the things that was interesting. I remember noting when I was there that you address in the book is this idea that, uh, Double jiggering is something. So for the people listening at home that don't know it, it's like, okay, we, we have two jiggers, one large, one small that they're holding at the same time. And this is something that is, you know, uh, it's it's not common practice. And how yeah. how much more efficient it's going to make you is a question, but really more this idea that it's a little bit of flair you can inject into the process without totally slowing your team down at the same time.
0: 100%. Yeah, and you know, I do have to I do like to um give credit where where it's due um in moments like this. I I think it was called Functional Flair is is a, a Toby Maloneyism. Um Toby Maloney of course, you know, hailing from the Violet Hour in Chicago, worked at Milk and Honey, um Open Pouring Ribbons. Um you know, and just a hell of a, a hell of a gentleman um And a real, a real disciple of, you know, he practices what he preaches, you know, he's a working bartender, he's behind the bar, you know, I'm not saying every day to this day, but he still gets behind a bar and makes drinks. Um, And he was a firm believer in this sort of, um, it's a lot of the same stuff that I'm saying about do easy and such, I just needed to put my own language on it and my own spin on it. But he was a firm believer and and teacher of, um, you know, the right methodology uh, will breed grace, speed, and good tasting drinks, you know. So, um, yeah, double jiggering specifically, you know, is there a reason to do it at home? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it's fun to try, for sure. Um, For me, it became, you know, deeply ingrained in just the way we touch and handle everything. So um, when I'm training bartenders, um, you know, I always, obviously we're on a podcast, so can be, there's no visual here, but my hands, I'm sticking them out in front of me and they're both upturned and everything that we do behind that bar is done like this. So we when we don't, you know, when we grab a bottle, for instance, the typical motion is to, you know, wrap your fist around it and pull it up by the neck and tilt up your elbow and pour down. And that's the, that's not at all what we do. You know, I'm taking a empty kombucha bottle now and demonstrating everything is this sweeping flow of motion, whether it be dashing bitters or picking up cheater bottles um, and then even double jiggering. Similarly, you know, there's, believe it or not, there's many ways to double jigger I believe I have the right superior way and it's with hands up palms facing up like this with um you know two jiggers tucked in between your fingers. Yeah, you can flip them easily. Uh you know do they make graduated jiggers now that have quarter ounces uh, that you could you know get away with just using one jigger? Yes, you do. And it's not as fun to watch. <laughs>
1: And sometimes it's those little dalliances that make it all worth the while right there. Yeah. It didn't, uh, obviously take too long for you guys to become very well renowned for your cocktail program. And what I liked is despite many of the, um, you know, the, the garden drinks and the julep drinks that are just so magnificent to, to behold, like I remember it's like, I mean, uh, I remember I, I got the cocktail book from the office out of Chicago of the aviary sure. Group, and, like, uh, yeah. and, and, those guys along with like your Instagram, I'm like, well, I mean, to invoke the term, I'm like, if there is such a thing as cocktail porn, here it is right here. But uh, uh, <laughs> honored. Thank you.
0: Very flattering. <laughs> but,
1: but I remember you saying at the same time, you know, knowing um, that Maison takes its influence from New Orleans and from Paris I was, uh, I don't know if I was surprised. It was more, more intrigued and wanted to talk about the fact that you say that the uh, cocktail uh, a la Louisiane is Mm -hmm. like, is really a litmus test for if your bartenders are dialed in and like a drink that you hang your hat on. Tell us about that drink and what makes it so iconically Maison.
0: Sure. Yeah, well, if you recall uh, earlier in our talk, I am not the biggest American whiskey fanatic and I guess, you know, a lot of that's just because I think there's so many things out there that deserve attention. American whiskey's gotten plenty of attention. And to be honest, a lot of the times I don't really feel like it gives me a strong sense of place and and uh, location and, you know, terroir, if you will. But um, yeah, so that cocktail was like, I think one of the first whiskey cocktails that I really fell for and enjoyed personally. Um, you know, making well-made Manhattans and old fashions was a litmus test in the early cocktail Renaissance. And, um, you know, they, I, they just kind of left me flat a little bit. I, I wasn't, you know, I was just rather indifferent to it. It was like, okay, I mean, if this is a good old-fashioned, I believe you, <laughs> good for you. Um, now, my attitude and thinking has evolved over the years where I I see a I see the old-fashioned actually as a great litmus test for spirits and to test a spirit through the vector of making an old-fashioned out of it. Um, That being said, the La Louisiane has absinthe, Peychaud bitters, um, Benedictine, sweet vermouth, and and rye whiskey. The first two things are so undeniably New Orleans, of course. Um, So you know, and the drink has enough complexity that you can mess it up. Things can go out of focus. Um, So it's not like a two or three ingredient drink like a Manhattan. Um, It's a little bit more complex. So when having a bartender make it and, and, you know, tasting it and evaluating their skills through that, I think you're looking for, obviously, balance goes without saying. Um, And, you know, balance is coming from, the recipe that we've tweaked and altered and edited over the years. Um, But it's also coming from correctly diluting and and chilling. So, you know, correctly diluting and chilling to me are are things that are connected at the hip. So you can't just, it's, it's not, they have to both be true. And a lot of people, especially I think people making drinks at home, the tendency is to under stir, um, and it's not just about stirring long enough; it's about stirring fast enough. And I think that's something that doesn't get mentioned a lot. You know, it's like okay, I can stir for two minutes and get it there, but that's so long that it's going to be overly dilute. You know, if you stir faster with more rotations per second, and you you know, let's say let's just say the magic number was ninety rotations, right? Just throwing a number out there if you get to that 90 rotation mark in 60 seconds, you have a cold and perfectly diluted drink. If you get to that 90 in a, in two minutes, then you have taken it too far and it's probably watery and sloppy and lost focus. So I really see it as sort of like aperture on a lens, um, to, to help get clarity and focus from those two variables. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Yeah, one, I forget where else I've read it too, but obviously watching a lot of amateurs for the first time or people at home, like they also sometimes don't use enough ice, period. But so with that, if we're talking about not stirring uh, fast enough, seems like a perfect time to go ahead and jump in. Like, Tell us um, a little bit about what makes the Maison shaking and ice builds um, so uniquely themselves too.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it really comes back to sort of like fun- um, form um, coming out of function. So, you know, a lot of these things are sort of not, maybe not the right way to do them in just any bar, but they're the right way to do them at Maison Premiere. So some of that's because of the space, the tightness of the space, like the fact that we use cobbler shakers um is aesthetic yes it is um technique yes but it's also a much smaller shaking footprint if you will when you're behind a tiny tiny bar um the motion of a cobbler shaker is a lot smaller than the motion of you know shaking the shit out of something so uh in a two-piece boston set so um i think that's one perfect example of like why, you know, why cobbler shakers? It's not just because I'm obsessed with cobbler shakers, which I am, um, but it actually uh, works with the space itself really well. Now, you know, uh, we use different shakers for different things. Um, Anything with egg white or mint or uh, any sort of um, really viscous syrup, like uh, Orjad or something like that, or anything with cream, uh, we use two-piece Boston-style shakers um, to make a an amazing gimlet or an amazing daiquiri or amazing last word. We would be using a cobbler shaker, um, and when filled all the way with cold draft cubes, there's a way. There's an almost elliptical whipping motion of uh and if you notice again this is visual thing that I'm doing but it's almost the motion of uh flicking a frisbee it's almost the backhand of a racket sport um and it's led with you know depending on whether or not you're right or left-handed it's led and supported with your other arm which is sort of assisting and guiding um So you're almost like knocking all of this ice, you're kind of chipping it. If you picture the the cobbler shaker style, it's actually tapered, the kinds that we use. Um, And so it knocks against that far wall of the cobbler shaker. Uh, And it has a really specific sound when done correctly. And you might ask like, well, what's correct about it? Or what makes it correct? Well, you want control over the ice in the shaker. You don't want these ice cubes to be um, exploding into each other. You want them to almost be moving as as one unit, even though there might be 12 individual cold draft cubes, as one movement or one um, uh, unit slamming into the uh, end or the tip of the cobbler shaker. And that's that really particular click almost that you hear um, when a mason bartender is shaking it and doing
1: oh. it right mm-hmm. and there is uh uh a some nice graphics in the book that kind of illustrate this right here uh so quickly because i i do want to talk about the daiquiri in particular in a second but yeah. uh i will say kind of just i for people out there listening a lot of them are probably fans of the cocktail world obviously i don't if i didn't go listening for a, a podcast on drag racing and here they are but uh <laughs> But what I liked about the book in general was the insanely wide and weird passes that it took on things. I mean, there is, you know, oysters are so, you know, uh, fundamental to who you guys are. There's a whole section on like, like the parts of the oyster, the types of the oyster, you know, absinthe is so essential to who you are. Like, you know, like this whole thing breaking down the history of absinthe, the plants that Maison. So I, what I liked about the book was, Clearly, there's a lot of great recipes, but the story that kind of attempts to capture what is this very unique ethos you've built makes it a very unique book compared to many of the ones that I've read. And so, uh, so anyway, so that's a just a plug. Very, it's also-
0: very exciting, by the way, to hear you. You're probably the first person that I've talked to that's actually, you know, seen in skimmed or read the the book which spent any time in the book so it's actually very exciting to hear people's you know your response and your uh, you know what you made of it so yeah. thank
1: you for, uh, you're very welcome it's uh yeah and so I, I can't wait to get my actual copy but the uh, the the digital copy did did it very good justice um so also again as somebody who is still honing his own craft even though i teach others the basics you talked about that when you guys are making a daiquiri at maison that you prefer to not fine strain it. So will to somebody like myself, who's still at times dialing in his palate and understanding the, the minor differences, talk to us about the difference of a finely strained versus not cocktail and why, why you feel that way about the daiquiri.
0: Yeah. Well, the old saying, and it's never been more true than at Maison premiere, the devil is in the details. (laughs) Um, And that's, you know, and again, tying into what I previously said, that's like, there's a right, the right way to do things at Maison is not necessarily the right way to do things everywhere. It's not, I wouldn't apply this ethos. You know, I there are a lot of uh, very cognizant differentiations that I, I tried to pull off at Sauvage on a drink level. Um, drinks at Maison are are incredibly complex in... Like I will go to no end of grabbing another bottle for a quarter ounce of something. And so, you know, some of these specs are 10 to 12 bottle pickups, incredibly complicated garnish for, you know, for, yeah, it is complicated garnish I would say is accurate. And whereas at Savage, it was a lot more about letting the producer shine through. So I know I'm giving you a really long way to, discussion on on my thought process behind this. But I think a lot of it is thinking about what the daiquiri, for instance, what that's supposed to taste like at Maison Premier. And for me, you know, there's a lot of refinement in our drinks, and there needed to be something really almost rustic um, about the daiquiri, you know, kind of brash and bold. And I carry that you know, on a flavor level, I really try to amp flavor at Maison, another differentiation from Sauvage, where I would let drinks sort of be themselves more and not manipulate them as much. And, you know, and then it, like, for instance, at Sauvage, you, you'd you really just showcase the spirit by itself instead of putting a couple of drops of orange flower water and a couple of dashes of orange bitters and like doing all these tricky little flavor moves. Um So yeah, at Maison, I really wanted the daiquiri to be a prominent drink. You know, I think I developed a recipe for that in 2013, maybe I don't know, somewhere around there. Pretty early days, Maison, and you know, daiquiris were just starting to become, you know, sort of the bartender handshake that they've become today. I feel like, you know, it was—I don't know what, who first said snackery actually. But I feel like it was a close friend of ours. And I feel like, you know, those were the terms in the lingo coming out of that era. And so daiquiris all of a sudden had um, cred, bartender cred. And so I worked very hard on the recipe because I wanted to have the very most impressive, you know, daiquiri spec out there. Um, so the Maison daiquiri, even though it's never been on a menu physically, um, it's a split base of of uh you know, two kinds of rum, a full ounce of lime juice, and then a half ounce of two to one, which gives it kind of this compression where you're squeezing the sugar with less volume because it's a two to one, but maximizing the the citrus to a full ounce rather than a typical three quarter. So anyway, all that coming together, when you taste, it's a very intense daiquiri because of there's a split between agricole and Venezuelan rum. And the agricole is overproof. It's very sharp, very vegetal. Full ounce of lime, very acid forward. But then that two to one half ounce gives it a lot of body, a lot of structure and sweetness. So when you put all that together, I wanted to kind of bust it up a little bit. It was a it was a little too perfect and and clean if 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 it was not fine strained, or sorry if if it was fine strained. So um fine straining became um not what we do to the daiquiri because of that now there's lots of reasons to fine strain other drinks um and, and in fact the daiquiri is kind of like the one notable exception that we don't find strain i a little tip for home bartenders out there um if you make a collins drink of any sort and i really just mean you know anything going tall into a collins glass on ice. Um, If you shake whatever the ingredients are, let's say it's a Tom Collins, and then fine strain over the ice and pour soda through the fine strain that you strained out, you will get incredible um, uh, texture and froth on the top that you would not otherwise get if you just dumped soda or tonic on top of the mixture without pouring it through the fine strain, if that makes sense. So oh. they're just like, they're little tip. They're little things like that, that really do change the way you experience the drink fundamentally. Um, and yeah, those are kind of the nerdy things, the little tips that I've um, gathered over the years and that I think define my style. You know, these aren't big realizations or big wins. These are a million little details like that that end up Making, I think you know, just better
1: drinks. Mm -hmm. That's a. I have never heard that one before. You know, I'm going to try that. Okay, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to make two because I gotta, I gotta actually. Well, you got to make sure. Yeah, so uh, I got another one
0: for you. Um, Once you master the 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 fine straining, when to fine strain, when not to fine strain, um, there's another cool technique in there that I don't, I've never seen done before we started doing it, but it's, um, double fine straining while splitting the pour. Uh, so with a Hawthorne strainer, you can push down on the gate to split the pour of liquid. Um, so let's say we're making two cocktails. That's a perfect way to not have to, you know, fill the cocktail glasses one at a time, but rather simultaneously. Um, and if you can visualize this, you can take two fine strainers, Cross them like this. Um, hold them with one hand and then split pour into two glasses.
1: The uh, the split pour reference was made a lot of sense to me in terms of I've thought about it before when I'm pouring out a cocktail, being like, is this is this distributed evenly? But um, right. if if I and again I I read pretty much all the book, but uh, anyways, that's double fine straining a split pour. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna. Re- <laughs> that that is yeah, call me,
0: have me on have me on speed dial if you need any uh, that, assistance
1: that's perfect I love it That I love that so much um so another thing that's so essential to Maison's service that for people who are, of course are not strangers to the bar you, they've, pro- they've probably begun to indulge themselves in this but I feel like for a lot of people still outside of a Sazerac um that absinthe is still even if they don't think it's going to make them hallucinate they haven't really dabbled so um new orleans with its french you know background it was very big there the old absinthe house uh got to frequent it last year at, at tales of cocktail um and obviously france be, uh, paris being the other big calling so will tell us a little bit about absinthe uh in whatever way you want you know by the yeah. way, it won't make you hallucinate people. It might make you feel a little glowy, but it's not going to make you hallucinate. But tell us a little bit about it and and you go into this in the book, but where people should think about starting with trying it even if they're at a, a bar. Yeah. So.
0: yeah, so um just for the record, you know, absinthe was already baked into the idea of Maison Premier by the time I got here. I I think we covered that in the book. Um Josh and Kristoff were inspired very specifically by a couple of um, very influential trips they took to, to New Orleans and then subsequently to Paris. And so um, when I got to Maison, I already, you know, it was a month or two before opening, and I but I already knew that Absinthe was gonna be a big part of the, the show. Um, I, like I think most people, especially at that time, didn't know that much about Absinthe because there wasn't that much on the market. Um, and it had only been re-legalized in the U.S. in 2008. So um, a dear friend of ours named Ted Bro, uh, who makes uh, Jade Nouvelle and, you know, the Jade Nouvelle line of absence, um, he helped, uh, you know, lobby and speak to Congress and re-legalize absinthe. Um And so we, yeah, so we knew it was going to be a big part of our identity However, we also were keenly aware that it wasn't for everyone and that we couldn't just be a niche bar, that we needed to um, have a, have more tricks than just absinthe and a beautiful absinthe fountain. Um, I started to taste through and understand and learn absinthe and the history of absinthe um, you know, I really crammed for for the first few years because there's a lot to sort of catch up on. Um, What's so funny to me is that what you said and how you started this question was about, um, you know, a lot of people think it's hallucinogenic. Um, I loved your term glowy because I think that's very applicable. Um, But yeah, it's not hallucinogenic. And what's crazy about it is it, Nowadays, it has this horrible sort of, you know, light it on fire, party, party vibes, college, um, bad memories, bad hangovers, reputation, Um, whereas it was really founded as being a healthful, you know, end quotes, heavy, heavy air quotes, um, a healthful liqueur. Um, I said liqueur, it's not technically a liqueur, liqueurs have... Added sugar. Absinthe must never have ab- added sugar, so forgive my uh, mis- mis- uh interpretation of it. But absinthe is very similar to pastis. I think a lot of people—that's an easy, easier way to understand it. Um, pastis was really created after absinthe became banned um absinthe became banned during prohibition in the states and just it was the one thing that really never got re-legalized um for a bunch of reasons but you know it's between 60 and 70 percent alcohol it's very strong but historically and contextually you would always dilute it and so a big part of the downfall in the court of public opinion of absinthe on absinthe is that people just slowly lessened and lessened and lessened the amount of water they were adding to it. Um, so historically, I, I always love to tell guests this, um, you know, historically, you know, we have a bottle of Pernod, sorry, Pernod, absinthe. Um, that was a very kind gift from Daniel Balud, actually. He brought it to our restaurant one day and it's from 18, nine, early 1890s, incredible. Uh, gift to, to and you know, incredible thing to see in front of you. On the back of the bottle, on the label, it says uh, dilute with five parts water to one part absinthe, which is a very standard serving style that we use to this day. Now, if you do the math on 60% alcohol between, you know, yeah, usually around 60 to 70% alcohol um, divided by five. You're looking at what, about
1: 12, 13? 12%. So you're looking at a percentage
0: of 12 or 13%, which reminds you of what?
1: Wine. wine.
0: Exactly. So drinking absinthe is so much more akin to drinking wine than it is to um, drinking a cocktail or a neat spirit. Um, and I, I always think it sort of has this, uh, it has the mouth feel and texture, uh, it's not the same as wine, but it has as much uh, nuance of mouthfeel and texture as wine does. And then it has all the herbaceous element, right? Which is incredibly complex, almost like a really fine tea. So I, I always like to kind of compare absinthe to a to a made up combination of tea and wine.
1: I uh, I found it useful to kind of talk for that kind of in depth uh, explanation in the book. And, uh, you know, it has not always been a flavor that's spoken to me. And yet it's because for a long time it was never served properly to me. And I even remember distinctly last year and Hey, doesn't mean you're always hiring as a brand, the right reps, but there was an absinthe brand at tails of all places. And they were just pouring it straight into the glass. And like, here you go. And I'm just like, I mean, it was just, I was like, how do people drink this? Oh, it's because it should be a four or five to one piece, you know. And I think in terms of also what Maison tries to capture, there was a uh, a lovely passage in the book, and it might have been from historical, but basically, like it takes a while for the water to drip into absinthe, you know. So it's it's, it's a time intensive process, and that's okay. I like this idea of I think yeah. when. Yeah, without hopefully feeling like I'm pandering too much. Like, I feel like when you step into Maison, it feels very like everything has slowed down because we've stepped back in time. And so, hey, it's going to take a couple of minutes for your drinks to be ready. That's fine. I'm hanging out in 1923, anyways. It's fine. So,
0: (laughs) absolutely. The, uh, it's so funny that you say everything slows. And, you know, I think the, the talent that, uh, specifically josh had in in building and sort of um um uh, set dressing the mason Premier space the talent that he has in that is that um everything is so hyper intentional and yet it feels absolutely you know almost by accident or just like it's always been there it never feels orchestrated overly orchestrated i think it it doesn't, you know, I think that's what separates it. You know, early on people said Mason feels Disney, you know, I don't think there, I don't, I don't think there's uh Mason still just makes excellent cocktails, serves excellent oysters. There's a reality, a throbbing reality to the fact that it is 2023 and you are in Williamsburg and you are in Brooklyn, which is the city of craft and the, the, you know, the brand Brooklyn has gone around the world Uh, in that way and so um, yeah I mean I guess Maison if Maison's Disney you know all of Brooklyn's Disney I guess (laughs) Um, yeah I think you know even the the fan um, is intentionally never ever set to the number two setting or the number three setting it's on the number one setting and it always will be because it needs to have that languid motion that reminds you that you're you know somewhere else
1: yeah. And the the stark contrast to that, like, I think for people that haven't visited, you know, the, the, the drinks are beautiful. The staff is clad. And yet, you know, a lot of times the outfits, they feel, uh, the, when I was there in, the, in September, the outfits were, people were dressed up, but it was also very relaxed. You know, you had this very uh, inviting jazz music playing. So it was dressy, but not stuffy. And so I think that kind of offers this nice contrast of like, we're dressed up for the occasion, but we're also here for a good time, which I think is this lovely balance as opposed to formal on formal.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially behind the bar. And this was, you know, again, a very intentional uh, thing um, that was decided early on. But behind the bar, if you notice, there aren't real uniforms. They're not actually uniforms. They're individual people's choices. And now the floor, you know, a back waiter, a bar back, um, a porter, a shucker, they have uniforms. But the story of Mason in many ways is the bar and the horseshoe bar and the bartenders behind the horseshoe bar. And so rather than, um, you know, dictating precisely what bartenders wear, It's more of this idea of guardrails, you know, and and giving them a frame of what to how to think about dressing for their job. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, So it's a suggestion, you know, in in a certain sense, and it enables that kind of personal style to come out, which also plays, I think, into the very Brooklyn thing that we're going for. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. But I, I do think it was cool in terms of like. I remember particularly in this section on a tire, it was like, okay, uh, suspenders are, are in here, but, uh, you know, they, they, they are attached via buttons, not via clips. <laughs> and I, I think it's this idea of like, Hey, if you're going to capture the moment here, here's what that means. Now, what your suspenders do or don't look like, that's up to you, but your point it's like but this is how this is what the maison standard is yeah
0: well it's like it's not you know we don't have clip-on bow ties you know they're they're real bow ties and if you're a back waiter and you've never tied a bow tie guess what part of your first couple of days on the job is probably learning how to tie a bow tie so i mean uh, that and a million other details like that i believe or i would argue is what prevents maison from being disney or you know cliche or, or just uh Uh, a replica a shitty replica of something it's it's real it's breathing it is alive it is 2023
1: yeah i think the the depth of the book and these points are what echo um when i talked with uh steve grass who helped bring uh hendrix you know he's like he's like dig into hendrix and you will see that the backstory goes forever and he goes like that's what makes a great brand is like, you know, I think is his point. He said, uh, Hendrix will always outweird you no matter the caliber of your gin. The story just goes for forever. And clearly at, at Maison to that point, you know, which is beautiful now, I'm sure it was a pain in the ass to work out all the details, but it's like, but that is what makes it so itself in that way
0: yes and i love the steve grass because he wrote a book on this i believe um i haven't i haven't read it yet but i'd I'd like to um yeah i mean it is an exhaustive mentality to have uh what makes mason tick every day is exhausting uh in the sense of you know i mean for crying out loud there's a section on plants in the book you know like Who manages that? Right. (laughs) We do, (laughs) you know, like who manages 400, 500 different kinds of liquors? I do, you know, who manages the 200 bottle wine list? Christoph does, you know, so it's like, it's just never ending. And um, I think it's a reflection, a very like aspirational um, reflection of, of who we want to be, you know, we, it's, You know, I, bring it back to cocktails, I was getting started as a bartender at a time when history was incredibly important, knowing and understanding, uh, you know, drinking history, drinking culture, because it had been buried in muck for half a century, you know, post-prohibition. So, you know, the cocktail renaissance of the 2000s, it was really stressed knowing your history. What's the origin story of that drink? You know, which for me, I, I'm, I realized that I really wanted to obsess more over technique. There were so many friends and peers of mine obsessing over history that it was like, okay, you know, like history. It's it's important to know, but it's also written by drunks. Like, it's <laughs> it's, it's inaccurate by nature. You know, so. Um, I wanted something that was really real and tangible in my approach to bartending. And so again, I think he's sort of, I'm trying to tease out this like almost manicness that is Maison that is like plants and artwork and, you know, 200 year old uh, wooden floorboards from a ship, you know? <laughs> like all these things come from us from a mindset of like obsession of detail, obsession of craft, and, um, obsession to never kind of let it rest, okay. <laughs> always keep churning and squeezing and getting, you know, driving it.
1: Yeah. And the, I think the book does a good job too, of, of talking about like who was the driving force behind various aspects, like, you know, uh, whether it was, uh, Christopher or Josh, like, I mean, the, that insane level of commitment to oysters, like, it's cool now, but I'm sure there were many moments in the time when it's like, you got to be driven to like, you know, call a bunch of small town oyster farmers and them to be like, what? Like, no, call my distributor. Leave me alone. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. in
0: the, and, and the early days of Maison, all of that late, late work and framework was was happening um, while I was purely, you know, involved as a bartender um i wasn't a bar director i wasn't the managing partner you know like i was a bartender and i focused in uh, with every bit of ferocity you know on my craft for that length of time as you know i think christoph was focusing on oysters and and learning how to put together a great wine list and josh was you know when we opened the garden it wasn't wasn't even there so that was year 2 or 3 and you know josh built that so he was wrapping his head around how to be good at that and so we were all kind of like in our own lanes um and the net results you know 12 years later is the book i guess kind of <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah and uh because the back the the garden is very again transporting and yet to read oh yeah this used to be like a, a shitty lot filled with trash Is like oh yeah that takes like a you know, this isn't Goldman Sachs money right here. This is like, you know, people are trying to figure out how to make that that happen right there, so. 100%,
0: yeah, vision and a lot of efforting.
1: <laughs> so as we like uh, draw things to a close real quick, I was, was curious, Um as somebody like myself and knowing that absinthe has a spectrum on it, but sure. one of the lines again in the book that kind of just leads me to wonder, like how do people like myself begin to feel more I'm always interested for the home bartender, like, how do you feel comfortable flexing outside of the recipe on the page right there, you know? And so, you know, if you've got a, a sour an old fashioned template, how do you put your little spin on it? And one of the things that you've talked about with the line here was, uh, we've seen a simple absinthe rinse lift an otherwise banal cocktail to sublime. You know, Absinthe is, it's big, it's unruly, as Toby would call it in his book, it's a bully. Um, Are there, in terms of if somebody wanted to begin playing with, you know, absinthe rinses and whatever, are there general formats that if you were them, maybe any kind of like signposts that they might look for in terms of where to deploy it or not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that I guess when I construct absinthe cocktails, I sort of think about it. I've never even put words on this, so pardon me if I stumble. Um, But I guess I think of it sort of in various levels of involvement on absinthe's part. So there is the simple dash or the simple rinse, right? Which I feel like is almost like, you almost don't want to really perceive it as being absent on the palate, like it's almost so minimal, you know, it's like kind of like, of course, people do this now with saline solution in drinks. I, I, I You know, maybe there's some adventurous home bartenders out there who are, you know, doing a couple of drops of, of saline or a pinch of salt in a drink. Um, and it's kind of like nudging until you start to perceive it as salty or as absinthe, and then pulling back just enough. So that's level one level two now we're talking quarter ounce in something you know which for me you know like um corp survivor number two perfect example where uh, you know at Maison. um there are a lot of d- drinks out there that call for a rinse or a dash or uh, something of absinthe That Maison, since we are an absinthe bar i like to amp up a lot of those drinks to like a full quarter ounce or a teaspoon or something so um You know, the corpse survivor number two, when made at Maison has a full quarter ounce of of absinthe and it's, it shows, you know. Um, Next, I guess, would be like the sort of really seeing absinthe as a base spirit. So we're talking like three quarter ounce or more. Um, And then you're really looking at like, okay, how do I cram fat, whether literally or or figuratively. Um, So I guess by fat, I mean, it could be literal fat coming from milk or cream or egg, but it could also, I'm also referring to texture and mouthfeel. So I'm referring to sugar content. So the thing about absinthe is, is it it suggests a sweetness, but there's no sugar added to to real absinthe. And so, you know, it can be a very cruel... (laughs) Uh, spirit to work with on the palate because um, it is so incredibly high in alcohol um, and it just it can be so piercing and that's the kind of absence experience I think with cocktails that a lot of people have an unfavorable experience with Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of it you know is getting it to a point if if you are going to lean in so hard and use it as a base spirit make sure you're thinking about dilution and that whole idea of five to one or four to one. Um, So, you know, you could make one of my favorite ways to drink absinthe of all time. And it's so easy to do at home is just as an absinthe frappe or frappe. Um, So to those who don't know, it's just adding a little bit of sugar or you could use a cool liqueur. You know, I love to use like maybe a little creme de cassis or, you know, creme de menthe or whatever, um, and using that instead of sugar. But anyway, absinthe frappe is just shaking on crushed ice, or you could even just shake it on a big old cube until it disintegrates in the tin, um, and it's a delicious, delicious drink. Uh, and and you'll get the dilution that it needs. So, Perfect. yeah.
1: Yeah, no, and the uh, the frappe is super simple build. And yeah, a way to kind of like, to the whole point of this, you know, is if you're kind of just wading in right now, try it in a very refreshing, easy way, as opposed to, uh, you know, tiptoe your way into the pool. Don't jump in with, with absinthe. You'll probably jump back out. So uh,
0: <laughs> Exactly. Exactly.
1: Uh, well, we will, of course, link to the book and and to Maison, but uh, where, where do people keep up with uh, where, with you? Where do they follow along with your little adventure?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, the Mason premier almanac comes out on the 25th. Um, we will be announcing a lot of events in the upcoming month, as you can imagine, um, both in New York, but also on the road, we're, we'll be doing a small, uh, book tour, uh, on the West coast, I believe her second week of May on the West coast. So, you know, San Francisco, LA, probably a few stops in between. And then, um, yeah, the release party at Maison. There will be several uh, of them, and they will be epic. And I can't wait to share the book with more people. It's actually very enjoyable to talk about the book with somebody. So, um, yeah, Instagram Maison Instagram is a great way to keep up with new news as it comes. Our website, obviously. Um, yeah.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Um... Well, yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time today, uh, and uh, yeah, the book is the book's wonderful. So, so thanks for putting in the effort to make it happen.
0: We're so excited to share it with everyone. Yeah, great to chat, Chris.
1: Hey, everybody! Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail!